Due to the sensitive nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This is the story of 9-11 survivors. Everyone has focused on 9-11 from the events of the day perspective, and I thought rather than take the darkness of that horrific day, that we could focus on some of the heroic stories from that day instead, to remind everyone out there that light will always shut out the darkness. When you need an example of just what is possible as human beings and how we should treat each other on a daily basis, the stories that I'm about to relay to you will provide perfect examples. These are all people that chose to either help other people escape or took courage to exit the building themselves in difficult circumstances. Some stories are short, some are long, but none are less or more important than the other. It is just a reflection of the amount of time and information out there on the people involved. Some of the people involved do not like to constantly tell their story in the limelight, probably for a variety of reasons, such as not wanting to glorify the events of the day or appear as if they are enjoying the celebrity of it all. And also because they would have to be reliving it constantly, which is obviously not healthy and will in turn make them unhappy and it will have them dwelling on the events of that day. A lot of people that have been traumatised by this day are still living with what's known as survivor guilt, and this would make it very difficult for them to process. You know, they will always have the question in their head, why me? Why did I make it out? Why not my friends or my colleagues? And for most people, that question will never be answered. So they would constantly be being tortured. These are stories that should be heard by people. And with that said, let us begin with the story of Brian Clark and Stanley Premnath. Brian Clark was born July 4th, 1947, and is a Canadian businessman and survivor of the attacks on the World Trade Center on September the 11th, 2001. Clark worked for the American international brokerage firm Eurobrokers which sadly lost 61 employees that day, nearly one-fifth of its New York branch. Clark was one of only four people in the South Tower to escape from a floor above the plane's impact, escaping from his office on the 84th floor. No one escaped above the impact point in the North Tower, and Clark's testimony before the 9-11 Commission, where he detailed problems with the 9-11 emergency call system, has been widely quoted. After the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, Brian Clark became a volunteer fire warden for his floor and was issued with a whistle, a reflective vest and a flashlight by World Trade Center security. On 9-11, when Clark saw a giant fireball in his peripheral vision coming from the adjacent North Tower at 8.46am, he quickly picked up his issued gear and began evacuating procedures for the staff on his floor of the South Tower. Clark went to his company's trading floor, which stood at the east side of his tower, and when he arrived, he saw his co-workers peering out of the windows, and he heard them describing the sight of people jumping to their deaths from the adjacent tower. One of Clark's co-workers screamed as she witnessed this and turned away, overwhelmed by the horrific sight. She sought comfort in Clark's arms. He took her to the woman's restroom so she could regain her composure. Brian Clark would later credit this act with saving his own life because it took him away from the east side of his building as at 9.03am United Airlines Flight 175 crashed into the south side of his tower, only a few floors below the spot on the trading floor where Clark had previously been standing moments before. After Flight 175 struck the south tower, Clark and seven other employees of his floor who had survived the impact, gathered together and started to descend stairwell A. They only made it to the 81st floor when Clark and his group were met by a woman and a man coming up the stairs. The woman blocked their paths and warned them there were flames and smoke further down. And the best option, and really the only option, was to try and go up to the roof in hopes of being rescued from there. Clark and his co-workers stopped and debated on the stairwell landing about what to do next, whether to listen to the woman and go up the stairs, or to ignore her warnings and go down the stairs. As the group stood there debating their next move, a faint scream for help was coming from inside the 81st floor. It caught Clark's attention. While the group 
continued to debate what to do, Clark grabbed co-worker Ron DeFrancesco and entered the 81st floor to look for the person screaming for help. As Clark and Ron DeFrancesco entered the 81st floor, Clark turned around to observe his co-workers as they started to go up the stairs to the roof instead of down. That group would all lose their lives that day as access doors to the roof were locked and there were no plans for helicopter rescues from the roof as the NYPD deemed it too unsafe to attempt due to dense clouds of smoke and rooftop antennas. As Clark and DeFrancesco made their way to the voice screaming for help, DeFrancesco became overcome with smoke and returned to the stairs, which he would then also ascend himself. Unlike the rest of his co-workers who went up the stairs, however, DeFrancesco reversed course and survived. Clark made his way to Fuji Bank executive employee Stanley Pramnath, who was pinned underneath some debris behind a wall that had stood firm. This was the voice that he'd heard calling for help. Clark has since stated that he found it strange that he himself was not overcome by the smoke in the building as his colleague Ron was. He described having a feeling that he was surrounded by a bubble of clean fresh air and this was what was enabling him to attempt to help Stanley. Premnath had initially evacuated the building after the first plane had hit the North Tower, but he was told by security to go back inside as his second building, the South Tower, was secure. Once he had arrived back at his office on the 81st floor, he was on the phone when he noticed the second plane coming directly at him. He screamed, Lord, I can't do this, you take over, and jumped underneath his desk as the plane was hitting the building. After the impact, Pranath found himself alive under his desk with only minor injuries. And when Clark found Pranath, there was a wall standing between the two. And the only way for Pranath to escape was to jump and go over the wall. Pranath was unsure that he would be able to get over the wall, but tried due to Clark's urging. Pranath made several unsuccessful attempts to climb the wall, and on one occasion injuring his hand when he put a nail straight through it but he persisted on Clark's insistence and his determination, and on another attempt, Clark was able to hook his arms around Pranath and help pull him to the other side. Pranath and Clark have recounted this story numerous times since, and have both stated that Clark was insisting he must do this for his family, and that seemed to give him the last push needed to get himself over the wall between them. Clark and Pranath then began their descent of the South Tower. Clark and Pranath's descent through the floors of the impact, was impeded by some debris and smoke, but by moving the debris, they made it passable. All of the internal walls were made of light metal framework holding up thick drywall panels. These panels were fractured by the initial impacts and explosions, and their twisting and shaking blocked fire doors and stairwells, and then shattered to make much of the dust after the buildings collapsed. The airliner that struck the North Tower struck it perpendicular to the North Face, the impact severed all the elevators and all three stairwells. The airliner that struck the South Tower, however, struck at an angle, severing two of the three stairwells, but it left stairwell A, the one they were using, more or less intact. A few floors below the impact, Clark and Pramath encountered one of Clark's colleagues, Jose Morero. He was ascending and using a walkie-talkie. Morero had received a call from another of Clark's colleagues who was above them, David Vera, saying his party needed help. Clark tried to convince his colleague not to ascend, but Morero insisted on going higher to help Vera and the others. At the Sky Lobby on the 44th floor, Clark and Pramath encountered a Port Authority employee who was tending to a severely injured tenant. The PA employee told them that all the phones were out on that floor and he asked them when they had access to a working phone to have someone send an EMT to care for this injured tenant. The phones were working in Oppenheimer's offices on the 31st floor. Clark was on the telephone for over three minutes and talked to three different people before his 911 call was understood. This call might have been the only chance for rescue workers to learn that there was a clear stairwell that the several hundred people trapped above the impact could try and use to escape. Clark described how he and Pramnath did not feel a sense of urgency and before calling 911, they each made one brief personal call. At 9.55am, they got to the ground floor where there were rescue workers waiting. 
One advised them to run once they exited onto Liberty Street at the southeast corner of the complex. At 9.56am, Clark and Pramath ran out of the World Trade Center complex. Clark described how, when they'd gotten about two blocks away, Pramath told him that he thought the buildings were going to go down. Clark was very sceptical, repeating how solidly built the, the towers were. But he did not finish his sentence before the South Tower, Tower 2 as it's called, started to collapse. Clark and Pramath had left the South Tower just four minutes before it collapsed. They were two of the last 25 people to exit the building. Clark was number 22. Only two other people exited the South Tower after Clark and Pramath. Pramath thanked Clark for saving his life. Clark in turn also thanked Pramath since he felt that the act of leaving his group and freeing Pramath drew him out of a debate that might have ended with his joining of the others who went up to their deaths. His Eurobroker's colleague, previously mentioned, Ron Francesco, who had initially turned around because of the smoke, mustered the strength to resume the descent and was the last person to escape the South Tower before its collapse. He awoke several days later in a hospital suffering from extensive burns and a head laceration. They were among only four out of 18 people who managed to escape from in or above the impact zone in Tower 2. Richard Fern, a Eurobroker's IT manager, was the fourth. 61 of Clark's co-workers were killed in the incident. Clark was later appointed by his company's management to be the president of the Eurobroker's Relief Fund, which was created to help take financial care of the families of those who were lost. He retired in 2006, a year after Eurobrokers merged with another company. Since his retirement, he has been an active volunteer with various non-profits, including serving on the board and as treasurer of the New Brunswick Theological Seminary in New Jersey. Clark has also engaged in a number of speaking engagements in a variety of mediums. He's been interviewed online, for newspapers, and has also appeared on podcasts. He's also spoken at schools and universities. And I would encourage you to watch a video that I've currently seen a few times on YouTube where Clark is speaking at Mesquite ISD to students and his account of the day earned him a standing ovation from students who were too young to even remember 9-11 fully and this will show you the power of his story. He's very articulate with an amazing attention to detail. So after hearing Brian and Stanley's story the first time I was absolutely amazed and every time I've heard it recounted since it still moves me you know you had Clark who could have quite easily got out of there um, without attending to Stanley he could have walked past and got himself out of the building taking others with him but he chose to stop that day and do something that most of us probably wouldn't do um you know, when when we find ourselves in these situations, it's very much, as they always say, fight or flight. And he chose to stay that day and fight for somebody that he didn't even know. And the character that would have taken amazes me. Um, when, when you're talking about heroes and role models to look at, I personally would count Brian Clark as one of mine. Um, you know, his compassion that day for somebody, like I said, that he didn't even know um, blows me away. Um, also the courage of Stanley to trust somebody he didn't know, um, entrust him with his life, essentially. Um, and they, they've since said that <laughs> when Brian pulled Stanley over the wall, um, almost out of relief, Stanley gave Brian a, a huge kiss and said, we're going to be brothers for life. And they both had cuts on their hand and put their hands together and mix their blood now in this day and age that's something you would probably never find people doing anymore and I know we used to do it a lot as kids with our our best friends and things like that um but you just you would never hear of it now and to hear of them having a moment like that of such love and compassion for each other in horrific circumstances just shows like I said at the beginning of this podcast that love and light will always push away the darkness um, I, I implore you all to check out their stories more um, like I said there's countless podcasts uh, interviews 
videos on YouTube for you to go more in depth with it. And I hope you understand why I included it in this podcast, because it really does show how human beings should treat each other. And with that said, in that story, we heard about a gentleman by the name of Ron DeFrancesco. So our next story is the story of Ron DeFrancesco. Ron DeFrancesco was a Canadian working on a US immigration work visa in the South Tower of the World Trade Center on 9-11. He was a manager at Eurobroker's office on the 84th floor. As a Canadian, he felt it was a unique honor for him to have been appointed to his position and to be working in the World Trade Center, regarded by many as the most prestigious building in Manhattan. When the first plane hit the North Tower, the people in his office heard the crash and saw the flames and smoke emanating from that building. They did not know yet that a hijacked plane had been involved. As the phone started ringing and people started asking Ron and the other employees there what happened, they surmised that a small plane had lost its way and accidentally hit the building. They could see that the flames from the crash were forcing people in the North Tower to flee and in some cases to jump to escape the fire. As news reports started coming in, giving more accurate accounts of what was happening, Ron got a telephone call from his good friend in Canada telling him to get out of his building. He heeded the warning and made his way over to the elevators. Just then, the second plane hit his tower. Ron says that the impact of the crash was so violent that the building swayed some seven or eight feet. He thought for the moment that the building would tip over, but instead it simply swayed back the other way. After the building had stopped swaying, Ron made his way to the staircase. Unlike in the North Tower where the plane came in level, in the case of the South Tower, the pilot of the plane came in on an angle, evidently to cause maximum damage. In a sense, it was very fortuitous for Ron because the right tip of the wing of the airplane ploughed into the tower above the 84th floor, although the body of the plane crashed into the building below it. Ron quickly made his way to the staircase as smoke was coming up the stairs from the floor below. He tried to make his way down, but people from lower floors were coming up to escape the fire, so he turned around and tried to go up. Since the right tip of the wing of the plane, since the right tip of the wing of the plane hit the tower above his floor, that part of the tower was on fire. There was no way to proceed upward. For perhaps the first time, Ron realized that he was no longer in control of the events in his life. A sense of doom descended on him, and the rest of the people trapped between the floors. Unable to go up, once again he turned to go down, facing the billowing smoke coming up the staircase like a smokestack. Now, there was also fire down below, and despite using a piece of drywall to shield himself from the heat, as he proceeded, his body was being burned. He thought it was all over. Overcome with smoke, he was about to give up. Just then, Ron says he heard a voice. He cannot really explain exactly whose voice it was, but he drew strength and faith from it, enough to continue downward despite the burns. Then he heard a second voice, the voice of a firefighter. While he could not see in the smoke, the firefighter said to come in the direction of his voice and to go further down the stairs. Ron reached the firefighter and told him he couldn't breathe. The firefighter examined him and told Ron to go down to the bottom where he could be cared for. And that's what he did. Since he was now below the crash site, the sprinklers had come on, making the descent much easier. When he finally emerged on the ground floor, he was blocked from exiting the building by firefighters who said it was too dangerous because of falling debris and the bodies of those who had jumped from above. Instead, he was directed into the basement of the building to exit there. Ron descended below. He was especially impressed by a heavyset man who had also come down from his tower and was now descending with Ron into the bowels of the building. As they reached downstairs, they suddenly heard the rumble of the building pancaking down on them. They turned to look back down the corridor where they saw a huge fireball coming at them. They turned around and ran for their lives. Ron woke up in the hospital a few days later. There were burns to the great majority of his body. His contact lenses had melted onto his eyes and it took years for him to recover, but he had made it. He was the last known survivor of the South Tower of the World Trade Center. 
attacks. Since then, Ron and his family have moved back to Canada. He has returned to New York to the site since this has happened and has since stated that he was incredibly lucky to survive America's worst terrorist attack. His story is a testament to resilience in the face of adversity and, dare I say, it is one that reminds us of how precious life can be and of the fact that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. This is the story of Rick Riscola. Rick Riscola was the head of security for Morgan Stanley in the South Tower. His life, his service and his regard for his fellow employees all reflect on what he did that fateful day of September the 11th, 2001 and the over 2,000 lives that he's credited with saving on that day. His story should never be forgotten. Rick was born a Brit in Cornwall who became an American and fought in Vietnam. He was worried about the safety of New York City's World Trade Center ever since the 1993 terrorist attack when a bomb blew up in the building's basement. Riscola worried that it would happen again. During the 93 attack, Riscola was upset that the building evacuation had gone so poorly. He vowed that such a muddled exodus would never happen again, not on his watch. Among the first to understand that a new kind of terrorism was targeting innocent office workers, he became the director of security for Dean Witter Morgan Stanley in 1997. Believing the Trade Centre was a particularly vulnerable terrorist target, Riscola recommended that his company find different space. Because of lease obligations, however, that alternative was not possible. Instead, Rick developed an emergency evacuation plan which he required the Morgan Stanley employees to practice over and over again. Riscola could just not get out of his head that the Trade Centre would be attacked again. When it happened on 9-11, he and his colleagues were ready. When the Port Authority issued an announcement via its PA system that everyone in the South Tower of the World Trade Centre should remain calm and stay at the desks, Riscola couldn't believe his ears. He immediately began an evacuation process. With his ball horn in hand, he ordered the Morgan Stanley employees to evacuate the building before the second plane struck the South Tower. His colleagues were on their way down the stairs, thousands of people, nearly 2,700 to be precise, and every one of these individuals owe their lives to Rick Riscola. And many are vocal about that. So many of the employees commented on how calm Rick was keeping people under such incredibly stressful circumstances. He even began singing songs to calm people down during their descent. Because of Rick's foresight and belief that he knew what was right, nearly every Morgan Stanley employee made it safely out of the South Tower that day before it collapsed. Rick was also a hero earlier in his life during the first ground battle in Vietnam. His picture is even on the cover of the first edition of We Were Soldiers Once and Young. An incredibly fearless and courageous man, Riscola entered the South Tower of the World Trade Center to be sure that all of the Morgan Stanley employees had safely left the building. He believed there were a few that still needed his help. A soldier to the end, he would never leave anyone behind, even if it meant sacrificing his own life. Riscola knew he was facing difficult odds when he re-entered the tower. He was last seen near the 10th floor on his way up again to help the last of his colleagues leave the building. Shortly before the South Tower collapsed, Rick called his wife Susan. He told her, stop crying. I have to get these people out safely. If something should happen to me, I want you to know I've never been happier. You've made my life. Sadly, something did happen to him. When the South Tower collapsed, Rick was still in the building. His body has never been found. All but 13 Morgan Stanley employees had safely exited the building. So here is a man who's undeniably shaken by the first attack and pressed his urgent beliefs onto his colleagues and superiors to invest time into carrying out drills and investing in the safety of, you know, all of their own people. And boy, did it pay off when over 2,700 people can say that they were personally rescued by the same man 
you know that man was carrying out his job to the maximum of his ability. A lot of times in life, you will get told no and carry on, probably none the wiser, and take that no for an answer. But not Rick Rescola. He did not do that and insisted on drills so that in the event of an emergency, every one of the staff working for Morgan Stanley knew exactly where to go and what to do in the event that something was to ever happen like this again. Countless of those employees saved by Rick have since said they found it so annoying that they were having to do these drills so very often. Um, but every single person has come out in defence of Rick on that day saying that only due to his planning and the execution are they alive today and that they all owe their lives to him. And a lot of stories have come out about how regimented he was in his belief that this would happen again and that this time they needed to be prepared for it. And you can see by the numbers that he saved on that day, he was so incredibly prepared for this. And we could all stand to be a little bit more like Rick. As tragic as his story is, his family can be safe in the knowledge that Rick was truly a hero. The story I'm about to tell on this podcast is from a fellow Londoner by the name of Janice Brooks. Janice had recently moved from London to New York to the offices in the Twin Towers where she was working on 9-11. At the time, she was contacting her old boss back in London. I'm going to tell you Janice's story in her own words. They are the words from an interview given to since911.com. The story was articulated in such a way that I did not want to change it because I feared changing it would diminish its integrity as I could not possibly tell the story in the same dignified manner that Janice and since911.com have here. So without further delay, this is the story of Janice Brooks. I arrived in the office early as Gil Scarf, the CEO of Eurobrokers, and my boss was in London and I needed to fax over the previous day's New York reports to him. It was a glorious day. I'd been up at six running, cooling down by walking through Battery Park. I left for work, relaxed and happy, about 7.20am. I was at my desk by 7.30am had breakfast, sent the first fax, was working on getting the second set of figures for him and had a wire transfer going through to CIBC. I remember picking up the telephone to dial London and I heard a loud bang. My PC screen flickered, the lights flashed on and off and I saw paper and dust floating through the office window. It was opposite where I sat and it was like an American ticker tape parade as the paper swirled and danced in the air. I ran around the corner to see Brian Clark, who told me not to panic, that it was probably a construction explosion and that he would investigate. I went back to my desk, sat down, and then I heard a man's voice shout, everybody out. I was later to find out that it was Bob Tuhig from our convertible bond desk. I remember walking along a corridor, seeing Mary Paterno and telling her that I was going to leave. I then remember seeing Walter Dolsky and telling him the same thing. I then went back to my desk to collect my bag. As I was about to leave, I hesitated and decided to call London to tell Gil what was happening. Kerry Stewart, the London receptionist, couldn't find him. So I asked to speak to Robin Clark, the managing director of the London office, and until recently, my boss. And I remember vividly my conversation with him. Rob, something's happening next door. We're all okay, but we're leaving. And Rob said... Something's happening next door. Fucking hell, Janice. A plane's gone into the building. Get the fuck out of there. The urgency in his voice made me move. I don't remember saying goodbye nor putting down the phone. I just grabbed my bag and ran. I ran right and into the small bond dealing area where I saw Brian Clark, Dan Smith and Dominic Murkovich. As I ran and told them what Robin had said, I vaguely remember smelling what I now know to be airline fuel. As I ran and asking if I should stay or go, Brian told me that whatever I was doing, I needed to stay away from the windows. I remember Dan turning, walking towards me and smiling. I didn't even stop to talk to him. I just kept running. I left the dealing area and ran into the main corridor, still not knowing what I was going to do. The first person I saw was Steve Chucknick. He and Jose Marrero were standing 
at the crossroads in the corridor. Steve said, come on Janice, down you go. The decision to stay or go was taken away from me with those few words, and he herded me into the fire escape staircase. The staircase was already full with people coming down from above. It was a steady pace, but people were chatting, joking and relaxed. A chap from Eurobrokers had entered the staircase just before me, but three girls separated us. He kept looking back, but as the stairs kept turning, I struggled to keep him in sight. I knew that I needed to be with someone that I at least vaguely recognised, so I asked the girls if I could squeeze in. I felt happier being with someone from the same company, although I didn't know who he was. I was wearing some ridiculously high, clip-cloppy shoes, and he suggested that it would be quicker if I took them off, so I put them in my bag and continued down in bare feet. When we got down to the 72nd floor, there was an announcement from the building security. They assured us that our building was secure, that the emergency services had requested they not evacuate our building as the space on the plaza was being used as an emergency medical centre for those being evacuated from One World Trade. The announcement went on to say that we should take a note of which floor we were on, go back into the building at the nearest re-entry point and make our way back to our own offices. Our nearest was the 70th floor. We carried on down two more flights and entered back into the building on the 70th floor. We followed the crowd, walking into and through the offices of Morgan Stanley and into their lift lobby. There was a further announcement whilst we were walking, repeating again that our building was secure and that the lifts would start to work again momentarily. When we got to the lift lobby, there were already about 10 people there. I was still with this chap I didn't know, but now we'd caught up with some people from Eurobrokers who I did know. In particular, Paul Gilby, or as we knew him, Daisy, and Robert Cole, who we knew as Woody. Daisy is English, and I remember saying to him that I hoped this type of thing didn't happen too often. He quipped every eight years. I remember him saying, and I knew he was referring, <laughs> to the bomb attack in 1993, when his dealing area was on the 31st floor of One World Trade Center. We waited for about three minutes, and the lifts did not come back on, and the suggestion went up that we should start walking. Daisy and Woody turned and left very quickly. I tried to keep up, and I remember calling to Daisy to wait for me. He called back, hurry up, old woman and then turned into the staircase. I never saw him again. I stayed with this unknown chap and now several others who I knew to be from Eurobrokers, but again, I didn't know who they were. We walked into the staircase, which was full of people walking down. We tried to walk up, and I remember a girl asking me where I was going. I told her that we'd been assured that our building was secure, so we were heading back to our office. She carried on walking down. We waited for probably a minute or so for the staircase to clear, and then we started on our way back up. There were now about seven of us. After walking for about ten minutes, we left the staircase and walked into the connecting corridor. I was about five steps into the corridor when I felt a dull thud. The building shook for about five seconds, and I fell back against the wall. I also remember the ceiling coming down behind me, and smoke and dust filling the air. I remember a man with a white shirt running back and forth. He tried both the door that we'd just come through and the door up in front of us. Both were blocked with fallen debris and rubble. Then I heard a woman's blood-curdling, high-pitched scream. And I remember a man's voice shouting for help and some frantic banging. We all moved further into the corridor to see where the noise was coming from. We could hear crying and shouting from the other side of the door. So... Led by the man in the white shirt. We cleared the rubble and pushed and pulled the door until it opened. About six shocked and dazed people came through. All were bloody and the women were crying. The first woman had blood all over her arm, which was cut almost neatly from her shoulder to her elbow. I remember seeing the bone and her skin just flapping around. One of the guys took his t-shirt off and wrapped it around her arm tying it in a knot under her armpit. She also had a wounded foot, glass in her hair and cuts on her face. She was with a man who had cuts all over his arms. One man had a cut across the back of his neck and the back of his t-shirt was soaked with blood. Another man had a blood splattered shirt and a huge pieces of glass in his chest which the others were pulling out. 
One of the men said that he'd heard a loud hissing sound, looked up and saw a huge fireball coming towards them from the direction of the other building and that the windows were all blown in on them as they ran back to the door. My initial thought was that Tower 1 had fallen on us. The last person to come through the door was another woman who had long dark hair, she had cuts all over her face and had one eye full of blood. This was the woman who was screaming. She was saying that she couldn't see and waving her arms frantically in the air. Someone gave her her bottle of water. She washed her face and the blood in her eye was from a deep gash on her forehead, which had dribbled down. When she shook her hair, glass showered everyone. We all then moved towards the downside of the corridor to the door we had originally come through. This door was now blocked with rubble and the buckled wire ceiling grid that had fallen down. Together, we all moved the concrete and plaster and the man with the white shirt eventually pulled the door open. As he looked down, he said that the stairs were gone and that all he could see was smoke and darkness. Almost magically, there was another door, flush with the wall and the same colour. One that I had walked straight past and never even noticed. Again, the doorway was blocked. The men all pulled back the rubble and we opened the door. Just a little at first as something was blocking it from the other side. The man with the white shirt squeezed through. He then pushed from the other side as the men on our side pulled. The man with the white shirt I was later to find out was Peter Rogers who works on our caps desk. The door was then open enough for us to get through. I remember going through sideways and feeling with my bare feet to find a hold. There was a huge plank of the ceiling that had fallen in and that I eventually walked onto. There was one lady behind me, the same lady who was in the corridor when we heard the screaming, and she was coughing loudly. Then lastly was the man from Eurobrokers, who made sure that everyone was through before he left. He came through, and then we all set off down the stairs. The lady with the arm and the bad foot was in front of me, with the other lady with the cough behind me. I was later told that the three other people from Eurobrokers were in the corridor with us, Steve Hudson, Mario Lopez Lina, and Greater Mayans, all from our Mexico desk. I do not recall seeing Steve Hudson, but I didn't know at the time who he was. We entered a well-lit staircase which was littered with pieces of ceiling, wire, plaster and concrete. Plastic coke bottles had exploded and there was a broken pipe gushing water down the stairs, which mixed with the coke and made them very slippery. The woman in front of me was sliding all over the place. It was very dusty. I remember coughing and my feet feeling sticky and wet. After about six flights of stairs, the debris cleared and the staircase was deathly quiet. All that I could hear were people coughing and the woman with the long hair still crying. As we were walking down, the man from Eurobrokers was constantly running back and forth between the people at the front and me and the coughing lady at the back. He kept telling us to stay focused, watch where we were walking, hold onto the handrail and to keep moving. I remember the woman behind me crying and coughing even louder. She told me that she had asthma and she had to keep stopping to take deep breaths. The woman in front with the arm kept saying over and over again she was moving house on Friday. She was crying and saying that she would not be able to help her husband with a bad arm. Her left foot was bleeding badly and I saw that she only had half a shoe on. Each step she took she left a bloody footprint and I remember looking down at my left foot and seeing blood oozing through my bare toes as I stepped behind her. I remember a sheer panic sweeping over me and a scream building in my throat until I heard a voice in my head telling me to calm down, everything was going to be okay, that it was not my blood and that I needed to focus and listen to the man from Eurobrokers. I stopped dead a few flights later when I saw blood on my shirt. It was on the front and on my left sleeve. Not much, but it still shocked me. I remember pulling my shirt from my body and mouthing to this still unknown man, I've got blood on my shirt. I kept repeating it again and again, standing dead still. He put his arms round me, told me that it was okay, but that we really needed to keep moving. I remember starting to cry and stopping again a few flights later and saying, I don't even know your name. His name was Bob Marn. We carried on down, we never saw anyone else until we were on about the 8th floor when we saw three firemen walking up. They seemed to look us over, probably noting that there were walking wounded among us but otherwise that we were okay.
and they then carried on, up, without saying a word. With about ten flights to go, the lady in front of me stopped, started crying loudly, started shaking uncontrollably. Her foot was hurting. Clearly she was having trouble walking. She said that she couldn't go on, that she needed to rest, and that we were to leave her and send help. When we got to the plaza level, Bob said no, and without much fuss at all, he gave her a piggyback down, I don't know, eight, ten, twelve flights of stairs. He carried her right to the bottom. At concourse level, it was a tag chaotic, and we were directed by Port Authority workers past Cosmetics Plus towards the PATH terminal, and then across by Sabaros around past Nine West, and then up the escalator by Tourneau. All the shops were locked and empty. There was a steady stream of firemen and police officers going back into the building as we were leaving. We left the World Trade Centre by Borders Bookshop and came up onto Liberty Street opposite the Millennium Hotel. At that point, the lady with the arm and the man who'd stayed with her all the time were taken to the emergency medical centre, which had been set up on the plaza. The last I saw, she was being led away by a paramedic. As I watched her leaving, a policeman stopped us at the top of the stairs and told us to keep your heads down, don't look up, don't look back. Bob grabbed my hand and we took off running. As we ran, I remember seeing a woman standing there, coffee in one hand, Krispy Kreme donut in the other, looking up at the building in the total trance. I wanted to grab her, shake her and tell her to run. We crossed the road and ran towards a policeman who was waving frantically at us. We ran past the church into Vasey Street and kept running until we came to the mouth of the Brooklyn Bridge. Lower Manhattan was being completely evacuated and the emergency services were directing everyone over the bridge into Brooklyn. Bob asked me where I lived. I told him Battery Park and so we made a plan to start walking across the crowds to my apartment. He asked me what time it was. It was 9.43am. Then, for the first time, I looked up at the World Trade Centre. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Where our floor should have been, there was a huge gaping hole and I could see smoke and flames. I could taste sick in my mouth as a wave of nausea swept over me and I stood in a trance, just like the Krispy Kreme woman. And I started to cry. I cried all the way home. I walked barefoot through the streets, holding Bob's hand and crying. He was wonderful. He kept me moving and kept me calm. People were looking at us. Someone pointed at me and said, look, that girl has blood on her shirt. I cried even harder. The streets were full, and instead of leaving Lower Manhattan, people were all just milling around, not knowing what to do. There were police and emergency service officers everywhere, directing people and still moving them towards the Brooklyn Bridge. We were still walking against the crowds, but eventually we crossed the West Side Highway and walked into my apartment block. The park opposite was full of people just standing around in small groups talking and looking up at the towers in shock and awe. My apartment was on Rector Place in Battery Park. Bob came in, tried to call his wife, the lines were constantly busy so he gave me a hug, told me that I was safe inside and that I should try to relax. Then he left. Once he had gone, I just kept trying to call London. After about 10 minutes I was able to get through and I spoke to Gil. He asked me if I was okay, where I was, who I was with and who I last saw on the floor. For the first time, I thought about who I had last seen. I told him about Brian, Dan and Dominic, and that it was Steve and Jose who had herded me into the staircase. I told him about Bob, that he was okay, but that he had left and was going to try and get home to New Jersey. The line was disconnected after about three minutes. I kept trying, and eventually I got through again. This time I spoke to Robin, and then to my best friend, Jill Whitfield, she later told me I was hysterical, which was strange because I thought that, under the circumstances, I was quite calm. I then tried to call my family and friends in Florida and Ray, who was looking after my dog, Sydney, in upstate New York. I remember talking to him and again the line being cut. Each time I finally got through to anyone, the line was disconnected after a few minutes. When the first tower fell, I heard the rumble a long time before I saw anything. I thought there was another plane, and I remember screaming and ducking and waiting for the inevitable crunching sound. There was a small flurry of dust and I saw paper swirling around outside my window. The telly stayed on and everything in the apartment continued to work. I was still trying to call my friends, 
the lines were either constantly engaged or just ringing, and then going to a voice recording saying that my call could not be connected at that time. Then I heard the same rumbling sound that I had heard before. This one was much louder. I was on the telephone to a friend in Houston when the line went dead. The teddy flickered off. And I felt the building move. The crockery in the dishwasher began to rattle. The windows were vibrating and making a humming sound. And as I looked up, I saw darkness creeping around my building. I watched in a trance as the billowing cloud seemed to move in slow motion as one by one my windows were blacked out. It was as if there was someone on the roof unwinding a heavy roll of carpet until eventually it was pitch black inside and I could not even see my hand in front of my face. I remember sitting down and crying. I sat on the sofa rocking back and forth and I thought that I was going to die. I was so frightened. I was going to die and I was alone. I will never forget that feeling. Even now, in my dreams, I see this girl sitting alone in the dark, rocking back and forth and crying, thinking that she is going to die. The humming and rattling stopped first as the building seemed to shudder and come to a rest. I remember being shocked into action and getting up, racing to find a torch, trying the telephone, turning the telly on and off, the lights, nothing was working, and I had no water. I ran into my bedroom to get my sports radio and I just sat in the dark crying and listening to the news. After a while, the black turned to grey, then to light grey, and then to just swirling paper and dust. I remember standing up and looking out at the Statue of Liberty in the harbour. One side of my apartment looked like a picture-perfect summer's day. The other side was chaos and people were dying. I was shocked out of my days by the telephone ringing, the only thing in my apartment to spring back into life. It was Sylvia Connors who was calling me, looking for her husband, Kevin. Whilst I was in London, Kevin stayed at the apartment and still had the keys. She was hoping somehow he would make his way back to Battery Park and just turn up on my doorstep. I was to speak to her at least three more times during the coming hours. Then I heard a commotion in the hallway outside my apartment, someone calling for help. I opened the door to a cloud of black dust and called out for them to walk towards the light out of the darkness came firstly a young girl and then a young man. She had been in the lift which opened at my floor. As she got off, the dust cloud came up the lift shaft. He was from an apartment on my floor which was nearest to the World Trade Center. He had glass in his hair and cuts to his face and arms, but was shocked more than anything else. He was looking out of his window as the second tower began to fall, and as he tried to close the window, it smashed and fell in on him. We cleaned him up, putting plasters on his hands and arms, and then sat alternatively trying the telephone, but mostly getting the voice recording. The girl had a call on her mobile phone. One of her friends was at Pier 11, and there were ferries leaving for New Jersey, so she left almost immediately. She lived on the 19th floor, so I was going up to her apartment to collect some belongings. I gave her my telephone number and told her to call me if she needed any help. I never heard from her again. After an hour or so, I went with the man back to his apartment. There was dust and glass everywhere. All the windows on one side of his apartment had blown in. And his belongings on that side were scattered all over the place. He collected some clothes and decided to make his way to Greenwich Village, where his office was and where most of his friends lived. I went back to my apartment and decided that I needed a plan. After I'd got through, I had been leaving messages for Eileen McMahon the Eurobroker's New York personnel director, and she finally called me. She had heard my messages, so knew that I was safe, but had trouble getting through to me. The train she was on had been terminated at City Hall, and she had come up onto the street about 10 minutes before the plane hit our building. After walking for over an hour, she eventually found a Queensbound bus, which took her almost to the top of her road. I can't remember if she invited me or I invited myself, but a plan was hatched that I would make my way to her place if the power did not come back on in my apartment. The plan was set that I would have to leave my apartment by 5.15pm in order to get to her before it started to get dark. So I busied myself packing a small bag. I tried to contact the house management. There was no answer at the reception desk of the building, so randomly calling, I finally got an answer from the on-site dry cleaners, who actually told me that they were based at the far side of Battery Park, 
He said that my building had been evacuated about three hours before and that I should think about leaving. I told him that I hoped that the power would come back on and that I could stay. He told me it wouldn't happen, that the whole area had no electricity, gas or water. I told him that it was pitch black in the hallway outside my apartment. He told me to get into the fire exit and make my way to the ground floor. He asked if I had a torch. I did have, but it seemed to only flicker on when it wanted to. I told him that I had a candle. He told me not to use the candle as he had been told that there were underground gas explosions. I told him that I would open the door and see if I could smell gas. He told me that by then it would be too late. He wished me well and said he was just leaving and was going to try and get to New Jersey by ferry. I did not have a mobile phone, so I knew that once I left the apartment that I would not be able to get in contact with anyone. I remember feeling very vulnerable, especially not knowing where to go. Every subway train that I'd ever taken had been from the World Trade Centre, so I really didn't know where to start. Eileen told me to head to Canal Street, but again, the only time I had walked to Canal Street had been via the World Trade Centre. I remember sitting and hoping that the power would come back on. It never did. I walked out into the hall, opened the fire exit door, and as I could not smell gas, I knew that it would be safe for me to use a candle. So, at 5.15pm, and after one final heartbreaking conversation with Sylvia, I left my apartment to head to Canal Street in the hope of getting a train to Queen's. I had two bags, my sports radio, and a scrappy piece of paper with Eileen's address and phone number. As I locked my apartment, my bag strapped across me and balancing a candle, I made my way to the fire exit. The door opened easy, but it was pitch black inside and echoey. I called out several times, but with no answer. I then started to walk down. When the door made a heavy clunk behind me, I started to cry. I stood in the dark with my candle, my legs were like jelly, and my heart was beating so hard. I was ankle deep in dust and paper, and coming down those 17 floors was so much harder than coming down 84 floors in the World Trade Centre. I finally got to the bottom, and then, when I tried to open the door, I couldn't. It was blocked with dust and paper and what looked like pieces of cardboard. I turned to put the candle down, and as I did, it blew out. I was in total darkness, my heart stopped, and again I felt a wave of panic sweep over me. But this time there was no Bob to help me, and I knew that I had to do it myself, so I started to kick all the paper and dust out of the way, and kept pulling on the door. After what seemed a lifetime, but in reality was probably only a minute or two, I was finally able to pull it open, and was blinded by a flash of sunlight. The reception area was deserted, one of the huge picture windows had smashed, and there was dust, paper and glass everywhere. As I pushed the front doors open, I waded out into almost knee-high dust and rubble. The park opposite was totally dust-covered, and I was the only person around. I shouted out several times, but no one answered. It looked much like I imagined it would after a nuclear explosion, and it was so, so quiet. It was really spooky, nothing, no traffic, no ferry horns, not even a bird. I would have never known that a city with a reputation for being so loud could be so deathly quiet. I stood for a few moments looking around and then I started towards the Brooklyn Bridge, going wide of the way we came before as the road Bob and I had walked down was now covered in building parts and I could see cars flipped on their sides. After walking for about 10 minutes, two firemen walked up to me and asked if I was alright. I told them that I needed to get to Canal Street and they waved me in the general direction, but each road I tried to walk down was either blocked by rubble or by police and firemen. I walked for at least two hours and knew that I was in the Canal Street area by the Asian supermarkets and shops, but could not find anyone who spoke English. Then, almost out of the gloom, I heard a very commanding voice say, This way, everyone and I looked around to see three girls and a guy following the man with a booming voice. I quickly tagged on and the girls fell in beside me asking questions. They could see I was upset and when I saw them looking at my bloody shirt I explained the best I could what had happened to me. By the time I had finished I was in tears and I remember giving the booming voiced man the piece of paper with Eileen's address on 
and told him that I needed to get to Canal Street Station. They were heading that way and he said I should stay with them and they would look after me. When we got to the station, I just let them take charge. Someone gave me a ticket and then I was on a train. The booming voice man still had my piece of paper and was writing down where I should go and which lines I had to change onto. Each time he wrote something down, someone would shout out the line was closed and come up with an alternative. I still have the piece of paper. It looks like it has been through the wars, discoloured and tatty, but with the vital address I needed to get to Eileen's and the trains I needed to take. Two of the girls got off one stop before me at 33rd Street. Then it came to Grand Central, the stop where I had to get off. The booming man leaned out of the train, pointed down the platform and told me to follow the directions for the number 7 train, which would take me to Queen's. Another man got out at the same stop and told him that he would need to look after me. He took my arm and just led me. He took me to the platform that I needed and waited until the train came in. I was aware of him talking to the conductor and I got on. The conductor came out of his cab, made some people move and had me sit down. He talked to me the whole way and also started talking to two ladies that were sitting opposite. One of the ladies was getting off where I needed to change and the conductor instructed her to take me to the R train. I remember walking up two flights of stairs before being on the right platform. She put me on the train with the conductor's cab and as before, she spoke to him before putting me on. The conductor came out of his cab, talked to me for the rest of the journey and put me off at 63rd and Rigo Park. I called Eileen from a petrol station just outside the subway and she came to meet me. It was 8.55pm, a normal 45 minute journey had taken me nearly four hours. I cried when I saw her. Her niece, Elaine, Elaine's husband Rob and their daughter, Ciara, were there and I remember feeling very detached as we sat watching telly and eating pizza. I don't remember much about anything else that night. I do remember spending about an hour in the shower washing the dirt and dust away. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror and knowing that my life would never be the same again. I was aware of Eileen talking to Roger Swed, the Eurobroker's legal counsel, on the telephone and him telling her that 80 people were still missing, which I couldn't understand. And I know that she said that we would go to the help desk, which was being set up at Michael Schlaff's office, on Madison Avenue the following day. I think that I spoke to my aunt and my dad, but I'm not really sure. It is the only time that I can't remember clearly what happened. Everything else is so vivid and has stayed with me. This alone I'm vague on. I don't remember what time I went to bed, but I remember looking at the clock and seeing 3am blinking at me. I couldn't close my eyes without seeing the flames and smoke coming from our floor and that billowing black cloud moving slowly around my apartment. I woke exhausted. We arrived at Michael Scarf's office about 11.30am on Wednesday, September the 12th. Already at the help desk were Sue Sullivan, Roger Schwed, Steve Vigliotti, together with Debbie Liebel, who works for Michael Scarf. Sue, Roger and Steve had been there since the day before at about 11am, so had worked through the night together with Walter Danielson, who had left about 10 minutes before we arrived. I remember Sue giving me a piece of paper with the names of the people who were still missing. Looking down the list with each name, I saw a face and recalled a conversation. Some of them I had seen the morning before in the kitchen, others I had made plans to go out later with that week, I saw Dan's name, Dominic's, Steve's and Jose's. Of the last five people I saw on our floor, four were missing. Also included in the list, I saw Kevin Connor's name and I thought of my conversations with Sylvia the day before and I remembered how with each call and the passing of hours, her voice became more and more desperate and I felt particularly sad. All these people were missing and I didn't understand. Overnight, the list had come down from 80 people to 60. Our main job was to answer the telephones and give out what sketchy information we had. Eileen and I arrived at the help desk at 11.30am and did not leave until 2.30pm the following day. And the telephones were ringing all night. The calls were heartbreaking. 
desperate voices, all hoping for some good news. And in so many cases, we had nothing to say. So there you have Janice Brooks's story. And I still distinctly remember the first time I heard Janice's story. I was watching a documentary on 9-11 on YouTube, as I used to most nights for a while. And you'd always see them pop up on anniversaries every year. But this one documentary um, told the story of, of Janice and a few of her colleagues as well, including Brian Clark, obviously previously mentioned. And the vividness in the way she recounts her story and the amount of detail she goes into just staggered me. Um, you know, the emotion in her voice as she was saying it um, still haunts me to this day. And I don't know whether that's because it's coming from a British voice. So when I was listening to it, I kind of... Um, I don't know, maybe maybe it's that I... I don't know what I say. I sympathise with her more because obviously I, I try and sort of sympathise or empathise with everybody that day but maybe it just hit home a little bit more when you heard as a British person a British person also retelling that story and it it was amazing the amount of detail she'd gone into and I commend her for her bravery that day because uh you know not only being in a building that she'd only just moved into work-wise so really did not know a lot about she didn't know most of the people she was working with she didn't know the area she had no idea of the transport system the network of streets there because it's very different to here in London I mean we don't operate in sort of blocks and you know 42nd and Broadway and all that sort of stuff you know ours is all street names and very windy roads and it's a maze basically London compared to New York it's 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 not well I don't think it's that organized um so it would have been completely foreign to Janice on that day and it probably just amplified by the fact that she you know she was in her apartment thought things were going to be okay she went into darkness she had convinced herself she was going to die even in the safety of her own apartment and I think that's a theme reflected throughout all of these stories is people thought they were going to die even when they were in a, a place which was virtually safe and when you think about things on the on the wider scale kind of symbolic really that everyone went to work that day thinking that they were safe in one of the safest countries in the world with one of the biggest armies in the world and best defence systems and best governments and intel and yet even in their own backyard they were not safe and were attacked and attacked horrifically and I think that's a lesson for everybody listening to this that you know always just be on the lookout be safe don't take any silly chances you know even with things that you deem very small like ladies walking home at night on their own don't do it um, it's just amazing that the stories that have come out of that day and that's why I wanted to focus more on the survivor stories and the heroic nature of some of the people on that day because it will far forever outweigh the evil that was perpetrated on that day and I just wanted to convey that because I think a lot of the time 9-11 gets lost on people because of the sensationalism of it and the horrific nature of it and the images of those planes going in those buildings and the buildings coming down is something that we will never forget once you've seen it. But people always like to focus on the negative side and I'm, I'm very much a, a positive person and I'm sure some people out there need this sort of inspiration so I hope you enjoy what you heard today and... Until next time and the next story.